Hi everyone! Thank you for joining us. This is our these books drunk. I love that we're all making our little faces while we sing. Might as well. You're pretty insane. I'm Brandy. I'm Emma, and I'm Mariana. This is your book club with a twist, and we are your happy hour girlfriends. This month, we're talking about a New York Times editor's choice. Real Life by Brandon oh, Taylor. Yes. Ladies, November didn't come soon enough. I know. <laughs> I've been looking forward to diving into this profound novel where I am sure we will explore sensitive matters. Yeah. I am yeah. ready to get vulnerable with both of you. In this coming of age, partially autobiographical novel, we meet our protagonist, Wallace, and join him on his real journey. Hmm. Emma? Yeah. What will we be drinking for this ride? Yes, girl, get us a drink. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> Today, we'll be drinking a cocktail that was created just for us for this episode by Ricardo. Woo! Yeah. Inspired by a pretty main event in these first two chapters, he named this drink First Kiss. Oh. I know. It sounds cute, but in context, it's actually like, ooh. I know. <laughs> the drink is actually a twist on the famous cocktail Alabama <sighs> Slammer, which is also appropriate considering our protagonist, Wallace, hails from Alabama. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Here to share the recipe for this cocktail, which I hope is more exciting than the one Wallace experienced. Oh. The kiss, I mean, not the cocktail. <laughs> that was confusing. I love that. Is our official bartender, Ricardo. <laughs> Ricardo. Ricardo. Ow, ow. Ciao, ladies. Welcome to the bar. Ciao. We're Good. ready. Oh, yeah. Are you ready for your first kiss? Oh, my oh, God, yes. Oh, my. Yes, I am. So grab your shaker and let's do this cocktail. Very easy, but very boozy cocktail. So the ingredients for this recipe are three quarter of an ounce of gin. And I'm using the best London dry that you can find that is beef eater. Uh, three quarter of an ounce of bourbon. And I'm using redemption bourbon. Three quarter of an ounce of the one and only Amaretto di Saronno and a quarter of an ounce of my homemade grenadine. For the Ooh, orange juice, you know juice. that I would love just fresh squeezed orange juice and not the mm -hmm. crappy thing that you can find at the supermarket. No Tropicana No Tropicana. All natural. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Put all the ingredients in the shaker except for the orange juice. Shake it and strain over ice in a collins and then top with your orange juice and enjoy your first kiss. Oh, this is this cocktail is such a pretty it's color. It's nice uh, red-ish orange color. Mm. And as Emma mm. said, yeah. it's a twist on the Southern or Alabama Slammer. So it's... Oh, yeah. Oh, so it's perfect yes. for the book we're uh -huh. reading. Yes. Nailed it Ooh, once again. Well, I'm I'm blushing the color of the cocktail <laughs> right now just thinking about my first oh. kiss. <laughs> and this is your own creation, right, yes. Ricardo? Yes. Oh. Uh, oh, this is an yes. original. 
Fabulous. Enjoy it. Alabado Thank salud. you. Gracias. Ciao, ladies. Gracias, Ricardo. Bye. Bye. All right, ladies. Cheers. Cheers. Salud, chicas. strong one I see. <laughs> strong, Ricardo like, knows this too well. I know it's true. It's strong but it's also so sweet too. Well, like not super not overkill sweet but it's, it's just not. like it's sweet and understated. Hmm. Like a first kiss. Like a Sometimes. first kiss. Well mm. I want to get right into this. Yes please. Yeah. I want to get right into this book because we got a lot to talk about. This week, we begin our journey with Wallace, a gay black graduate student in biochemistry in a predominantly white Midwestern town. We meet Wallace a few weeks after his father has died, though it doesn't seem like he's told anyone about it. And on the evening when the lab experiment he's in charge of has gone horribly wrong and the nematodes he had been breeding are likely dead, a setback that'll cost a daunting amount of work to make up for. Despite never having been kissed before or maybe never allowing himself to be kissed before, tonight Wallace gets two kisses. One from his friend, Emma. (laughs) Not me. In an attempt to comfort him. And one from Miller, a longtime friend, fellow student, and as he continuously puts it, not gay. Mm. Wallace hears a rumor that his nematodes might have been tampered with by Dana, the so-called bright darling of the grad department, whose ineptitude and entitled attitude have caused Wallace problems in the past. Our chapters end with Dana screaming at Wallace in the lab, completely unprovoked, labeling him a misogynist and proclaiming that women continually get the short end of the stick at the hands of men like Wallace. Women, she says, are the new N-words, the new F-words, F-words being the slur for gay people. Mm. Yikes, That moment really threw me. Oh, that whole character of Dana just made my skin crawl and... Yeah, I didn't really think that we were going to have to get into misogyny in this book, considering right. our protagonist. But that, like, yes, no, it still exactly. showed up. It still showed up. Thanks, it's Dana. Very interesting. Yeah, because we had talked about it previously, and we were like, we wonder if if there were a, a male author, and we read a book about a male author right. and in his life, <laughs> would he talk about misogyny? And look, he talked about it or wrote about it through this female character. So it's mm. still very prominent, regardless. Right. She's wielding it in a very unflattering, very much so way. The way this book is written it, it keeps reminding me of the scream by edvard monk do you guys know that painting oh one of the, it's one of those surrealist paintings yeah. it's i feel like the writing in this is very slow moving mm. there's a lot of attention paid to seemingly minor details yeah. but it a feels like details. there's a whole storm of like brewing. chaos mm. yeah brewing inside of wallace yeah. it's mm. so beautiful that's a nice comparison yeah the imagery i think is really stunning too there seems to be oh so many God. metaphors and similes and yeah, his, his depiction of everything is is quite stunning. And even the way it's titled, just being titled simply real life. We know that we're going to get rawness and vulnerability and getting to the essence essence of someone's life and being partially biographical. It's it's very it's it's moving and touching and eye opening. Well, and I wondered if you guys picked up on the connection to both Mexican Gothic and I'll drink to that. It happened for me in the first like few pages 
they say of, you know, Wallace is working in his lab and mm. they're talking about how he breeds these nematodes. Mm. And one of the quotes I, I highlighted was, then the resumption of the slow, steady breeding process, hurting desired chromosomes and wicking away the undesired ones until the sought after strain emerged at last. And I was like, oh, my God, it's like Howard. It's, you know, he's like trying to, Wallace is trying to build this superior race, this superior species, except it's worms. It's not Mm. people. (laughs) And then sitting at the picnic table with his friends later, Wallace has the realization that he'd like to leave his own life. And for a second, I just felt like it was Betty again, like Betty trying to become the real version of herself. herself. I feel like Wallace is trying to find the real version of himself and his life. It almost feels like he's watching everything happen and he's not really a participant in it. Actually, I think that's really interesting that you bring that up because one of the first things that I wondered reading this as we start reading about the nematodes and how he has that terrible experience with them being contaminated. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, they say that now he knew enough to keep his strains safe I couldn't help but feel like maybe these nematodes are like a metaphor for himself, mm-hmm. which might be going a little too deep. <laughs> but I don't know. I think like in the same vein of what of what you're saying, Brandy, it kind of feels like, you know, he's trying to cultivate something to keep it safe and to create um, – <sighs> Well, like you said, like a, a species that is on the same playing field and and he's realizing that it takes a lot of care and it takes a mm. lot of um, patience. Well, yeah, yeah. But just like there are so many other factors that come into play to try to fuck with that and how, Absolutely. how precious that is and how you have to yeah. really like work so hard to keep them safe, which is really right. sad. And it, I, I agree with you, Emma, because when that word contamination or contaminated, mm-hmm. when that that was something that I highlighted, because when these nematodes weren't working anymore, when they were contaminated, there was a, a mention of how hope and his prospects were lost mm-hmm. because of that. So if yeah. you're making that similarity, that association, it's also about like the obstacles that he's currently dealing with. Yeah. Being such at odds with like right. who he is and how others perceive him and how he can kind of get through all that without really having someone there to really support mm. his yeah. his questioning or his... His struggles. I'm glad that we're talking about this now because I just kind of want to start as we're as we're delving into this new book. I just want to start by saying um, I'm a little nervous, honestly, as we go into this, because the three of us have discussed, you know, we are three straight white women and we are discussing a book that that evolves around a black queer protagonist male Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and. Uh, I don't know. So, like, I feel no, I'm like glad that's you're bringing something that up. to yeah. be said. Here. Yeah, I think, I think I was definitely really nervous to to sort of head into this conversation because obviously all of our experiences are going to be so different from Wallace, and that's also why it's so important for us to read. I feel like right. a book like I think this, so. exactly. So, yeah, I guess I guess the best way to say it is that we're going to speak about this book as respectfully as mm-hmm. as we can and fully acknowledge that we obviously don't share an experience with this character. Right. 
and that we're looking to educate ourselves and learn along the way what we so don't know. Yes. Thank you, Brandon Taylor, for writing this book. And yes. for us, I, I feel a very grateful that the three of us have yeah. chosen this book and that we're we're going to go on, embark on this journey with Wallace and just yeah. really, yeah, enlighten ourselves a little bit further. Right. Yeah, that we're going to get the opportunity to sort of peek into this life and see what these struggles are and Absolutely. hopefully get a better understanding. Also, this is Brandon Taylor's debut novel. And I think right. like, wow, what a what oh. a way to like kick off yes. your writing Crazy. career. <laughs> yes. He's oh a beautiful God. writer. Oh, it's he is just, a beautiful yeah, writer. It's stunning. One of the first one of the first things that I came across, it's very early on in the book when Wallace is headed to meet his friends at mm-hmm. that at the pier. It says the air was heavy with their good times as the white people scattered across the tiered patios, pried their mouths apart and beamed their laughter into each other's faces. His description to me is almost as if these people are robots, like they're not quite human or something. And it's maybe simply that their existence is so different from his, so foreign to him. But I I feel like and tell me if you guys have too, but I've I've felt like this after a traumatic event before, you know, he's just lost his father. Mm. But sometimes other people's joy in moments like that can seem so foreign like you might never experience those feelings of joy again for yourself like other people don't feel accessible to you and I feel like I don't know if Wallace is feeling that in this moment it doesn't seem like it's from grief over his dad it sort of feels to me like this is sort of how he moves through the world yeah yeah it it feels a little bit like he's always sort of an outsider watching Right, an outsider looking in, mm-hmm. which I think yeah. you ha- you really nailed it when you said he's such an observer. I really think that he's really taking all of this in, and he's so detail-oriented and so meticulous, which why he is a biochemist <laughs> getting his PhD. Right. Right. I mean, it just makes sense, but someone who is struggling with a lot of things or, or, or struggling with who he is or, or wanting to be not necessarily wanting to be because I think he knows who he is, but just how others mm-hmm. perceive him mm-hmm. to be so open and willing to see everything else and really absorb it and put himself in other people's shoes. I think that's something that's so commendable that I feel I fear and I almost really dislike that people don't normally do that. They don't see outside of themselves. And what he's yeah. doing is exactly the opposite. Yeah, one of the quotes that I love that I think is a really great exemplar of that is when he's talking about the dedication to the lab, like all the scientists. He says, but it was automatic, this reflex to turn to lab, because as long as they were talking about science, they didn't have to attend to other worries. It's like he calls out from, from pretty early on. That he is a he. It seems like he has a very good concept of um, the human psyche and how mm-hmm. how people deal with their shit or don't deal with their shit. Yeah, right? he seems so in touch. I mean, I know that we're starting off by being like, we don't know if he really knows who he who he is, if he's figuring that out, or if he does feel like an outsider because of how other people perceive him, or if that's how he feels. But regardless of that, I do think that he has a really good concept of 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 people. Yeah, I agree with that. One thing that did give me pause, though, is I sort of, a part of me felt like, well, I wrote this quote down. He said he smiled because he was not sure how to meet someone's sympathy for him. 
It always seemed to him that when people were sad for you, they were sad for themselves, as if your misfortunes were just an excuse for them to feel what it was they wanted to feel. Sympathy was a kind of ventriloquism. Mm -hmm. And in this Mm -hmm. moment, I got the sense that Wallace has friends and has had friends, but maybe never true friendships that he felt deeply invested in or that he felt deeply invested in him. Or maybe it's that he's just never been able to open up to anyone's kindness without a healthy dose of skepticism. I do feel like he sees he sees things for what they are and he's able to look deeply into other people, but he's he doesn't let other people in. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, though, because I actually was thinking about that quote when you were saying it, because that was something that really hit me very profoundly. Yeah. Um, Because there is a discrepancy between sympathy and empathy. Mm -hmm. And someone who is sympathizing with you might be also thinking of themselves. But when you're really empathizing, you're really there for the individual. And I think that's where he's making this difference or like differentiating between the two. Because for him to, or for Brandon, to write that sympathy was a kind of ventriloquism, it's very interesting because it's like someone that's manipulating the situation as opposed to really genuinely feeling and, and and being there for that other individual while that other p- individual is going through pain or through sorrow or through some qu- kind of traumatic experience. Well, it's funny that you say that because this so this quote comes up in the moment when Emma, his good friend, <laughs> Emma. shows up. <laughs> Emma. Yeah, she shows up and she is showing concern for him, at least for the moment. But then she kisses him. Right. And I felt so uncomfortable with this moment mm. because... She's basically taking his first kiss away from him. Yeah. And then she justifies it to her boyfriend by saying that it doesn't matter since Wallace is gay. So here's Wallace. He's just admitted to her. He's sitting off by himself away from their group of friends. He needed a moment for himself. (laughs) He needed a moment for himself, which she's intruded upon. He admits to her that his father has just died. And now she's, she's being sympathetic or trying to be sympathetic. And then she kisses him and tells her boyfriend basically that, like, it doesn't matter because Wallace is gay. And I was like, wow, this is like a really fucked up moment that I think from Emma's perspective, she thinks she's like taking care of him or something. Like, I think she sees herself as maybe very benevolent in this moment or something. But from Wallace's perspective, it's a really shitty thing she's just done. Well, actually, I got the perception that she did it, too, because they knew that people were watching and it almost felt like she did that to get a rise out of the audience and make Mm -hmm. it more. I don't know. It felt. Yeah, it felt really selfish. Yeah. Um, But Mm -hmm. I also wanted to quickly touch on what we were talking about right before the kiss, which is related to that in terms of dealing with people's sympathy. That made me think uh, I've been learning a lot, you know. This summer, in the height of all of the Black Lives Matter movement, I was really yeah. trying to like educate myself and and read a lot and mm-hmm. learn how to be the best ally that I can be. Mm. Um, yeah. And something I was reading the book White Fragility, and there was a whole chapter on white people's tears, and this was something that was brand new to me that I didn't realize was an issue, but um, apparently members in the BIPOC community feel that when they want to express sadness or anger or hurt or frustration and they share their stories, when white people 
cry at that, it's kind of taking that moment away from them. And mm. this was very eye-opening for me and made me realize that, you know, it's it's hard to find that distinguishment between, yes, having empathy and having sympathy and, and sharing that we are expressing that we too are upset by that. But as soon mm. as we take that to a next level, it kind of takes away from their power. So that was really fascinating. And that to me is what I took mm. away from from this comment about Wallace and the sympathy. Mm. Um, and then, you know, tying that back into Emma kissing him, how it kind of felt like she was taking the moment away from him yeah. and bringing it back to her. Mm-hmm. And just that, that, backhanded comment i mean at least i took it like that saying oh it's okay because he's gay yeah it's like taking away his his feelings and emotions that how would he feel trying to respond to like the reaction that she had towards him or the action right. that she made towards him it's almost like she's saying he doesn't matter exactly like, to her boyfriend it doesn't matter because he's gay doesn't yeah don't worry about him. it he doesn't matter right yeah and then she kind of associates that with like well it's like i'm kissing a girl but mm-hmm. you're still kissing someone. Like, why would you say that? I don't know. Yeah. And I also just had a moment of feeling like it was such an entitled thing to do. Like if a, if a, I, I found myself wanting to flip the script a little bit and being like, if a man had done that to a woman, I would be furious. If a woman had been sitting there and her father had just died and she's trying to confide in her friend about it and he kisses her. I feel like I'd be like, right. what, the f- what the fuck are you doing? What are you yeah. doing? Yeah, it's right. a hugely invasive thing that it she's is. just done. And interestingly, Wallace doesn't paint it that way. I feel like all of that was happening in my own mind, but he kind of just breezes past it and moves on. I feel like right. that's something he does. He just gets over it and goes to the next thing. Though he did he did go on to mention that it was a first kiss that was taken away from him because right. he had never kissed someone. So that was right. kind of put oh. in there, which is very oh. heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. Well, one thing, speaking of heartbreaking, one thing that um, also was very hard to read and just I I was feeling so much for Wallace when he kind of made a note about him being molested as a child. Oh, my God. And later on, we find out that that indeed happened, that there was this man that his parents brought in that he didn't even know who this man was. And a way to protect himself through his troubled childhood was to turn on a fan to kind of do away with all the exterior noise that was happening, including Mm. that that might have stopped him from hearing this man, his footsteps walking into his room. Right. And when he was only he ended up getting molested. Yeah, so I don't even know if he would have had the wherewithal to even say anything. No. Right, and it seems to be an event that he harbors a lot of anger towards his parents for. Well, and I shouldn't say an event because we don't know that it happened. I I think we do know it happens more than once. It doesn't seem like it's a singular occurrence. Yeah. But whatever it is, it seems like his sort of blasé attitude about his dad's death is sort of tied to whatever this thing was in his childhood because he felt like I his dad didn't stop him right. right right his dad didn't do anything or he his father didn't do nothing did nothing. right yeah and that moment for me I guess kind of filled in some questions I had prior because you know speaking of the first kiss I thought it was really interesting because we find out Wallace hadn't been kissed but then uh, we're, we're kind of jumping around because we haven't even talked about Miller yet. So I feel like Miller has to come into play I know. before <laughs> I, I can know. even say this. But I know we all we read it. We know what's happening. OK, so this this whole 
relationship with Miller and Wallace, when they become physically intimate, it was pretty clear to me that Wallace had done this before. Like he's clearly not not a virgin. So I thought that's fascinating if he's had clearly intense sexual relationships, but he had never been kissed. I know. But I wonder if those physical relationships were consensual or if his only experience with that has been with this other guy. Like, has he ever had sexual relations that were enjoyable? Well, I think for me, the thing that it brought up was, you know, this idea of Wallace as somebody who closes himself off to other people. And it sort of made me think, I wonder if he has had sexual relationships that maybe were enjoyable to him, but hasn't allowed himself the intimacy of Mm. an actual relationship or Mm -hmm. a sexual encounter that would include something as intimate as kissing another person. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, I wonder if he's had hookups, Mm. but never actually let somebody inside. Right. I kind of read him being so closed off and him so being so focused on his work Mm-hmm. is that he, it seems to me that he doesn't fully feel comfortable and confident in showing all of himself to someone uh. else, which is basically what you're saying with intimacy, because intimacy, does, intimacy doesn't necessarily have to mean a sexual relationship. Intimacy right. can just having a yeah, very emotional. vulnerable conversation with someone right. else. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think now that we're bringing up Miller... I'm seeing that he, he's opening up to Miller in a way that maybe he's never opened up to anybody before. It just yeah. seems that they're starting to have these conversations that might be scary for him. Like him opening up and saying that I kind of hate this place. I might want to leave. Like, I think that took a lot of him to say right before Miller and him had their first intimate moment at the right. lake. Speaking of... Miller and Wallace, I have to say, I'm a little nervous about this because that progression happens so quickly. I agree. Like, I wrote down in my notes, Wallace and Miller held hands in junior high. And then I was like, Miller probably has deeper feelings for him, but he won't admit it to himself. And then it was Mm -hmm. like a page later, it was like, oh, wait, no. Oh, they kissed already. And then it quickly escalated from there to them having, well, maybe they didn't have sex right away, but. Much more. I know. I was a little confused about because initially it seems like it's maybe just oral sex, but then in the bathroom, I think it initially. Yeah, it seems like initially it was just oral sex, and then when they went, then it was yeah. But regardless, it still was a very fast fast progression. I feel like typically, you know, if this this is a very, in my opinion, momentous event to happen, I feel like most. Typically in a book, this would take quite a while to get to this point, but it happened in the first two chapters, in the first chapter, actually. Right. So See, it makes me nervous about what this is. What Miller, what's going on with Miller? Going yeah. back to it being titled Real Life, because I do, and I don't want to speak for my friends, and I just, I'm not going to give any specifics, but knowing that I do know a lot of gay men I do know a lot of black gay men and they yeah. do mention to me that a lot of times in in these relationships and forgive me if I'm wrong but this is what I've heard in in our conversations that a lot of their sexual relationships happen fairly quickly mm-hmm. a lot of these that those intimate relationships do happen in that way where they meet and 
they have intimate relationships. But again, intimate relationships, one thing is a sexual relationship. Another thing is right. like the There's intimacy about. So I yeah. didn't, it didn't strike me as that. I don't know if it because I was just thinking about that they had known each other for a long time and then they were finally willing to give in to one another. I actually found their first sexual intimate encounter to be quite moving because it was so raw and it was so real as far as what I was reading because mm. it was just so there were so many details and, and not that it was explicit but it's just yeah, like you really were in Wallace's mind you mm-hmm. were there for you witnessed kind of the experience of what that was yeah and how there was a point and I didn't even write the quote down that he was like a, a a young boy, you know, with his body, the way that it was reacting, that he was tearing up. And it's just like because it meant so much to him, like mm. that, that, that connection of feeling himself so warm with another body. Just all of that to me felt it was very moving to me. Me too, except that I still and I and I totally know what you're saying about, you know, a lot of queer relationships moving very quickly in uh, at least for men, I, I've also seen that to mm. be true with most of my friends. But the difference here is that Miller had just said that he wasn't gay. Right. Right. And, and they have a very complicated history. Yeah. So that is what makes this. That was the escalation that happened really fast for me. I think that I think the history between Miller and Wallace is what gave me so much pause about how quickly their relationship moves forward in this single night. Wallace is initially someone who said thought something thoughtless to Miller when they first came to this program. Miller took it really poorly. And then Miller actually ended up saying something pretty racist oh, to Wallace. Right. So it seems like they have this huge rift from sort of the moment they enter this program that kind of keeps on... It kind of keeps them separated. And then all of a sudden, they sort of just bridge the gap. And I wasn't quite sure what what it was that caused Miller to decide this is the night I'm going to. I'm a little bit skeptical of Miller for this reason. Why today? It seems very weird that after all this time of he, of he and Wallace having this sort of like beef... And now all of a sudden, out of the blue, despite all of his protestations that he's not gay, he kisses Wallace and goes home with him. And now they're in kind of a relationship. It just seems weird. Right? I know. The only thing I can say to that um, is that it seems that they come from a similar place. Miller's mom died. They have a connection with that. When he Mm -hmm. finds out about Wallace's dad passing away, they really connect in that regard. And Brandon writes that they were both unusual among their friends in that they were unaccustomed to the easiness of life. Mm. Right. So to me, it seems like there they there's a lot that they connect on, even though th- those things might have been, been said along the way. But it seems like there's 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 it seems to me there's a deeper connection and there's something building, something brewing. And and it it probably took many years for this event to happen. It's just that we're meeting them at this stage of the game. This is reminding me. And again, I feel like we're kind of jumping around because now I'm moving backwards when there was a um, a reference to Virginia Woolf's at the lighthouse to the lighthouse, Virginia Woolf's to the lighthouse. (laughs) 
you know, there's that there's this little exchange with Tom, Emma's boyfriend. Someone mm-hmm. brings up a quote and Tom is like, oh, don't get me started. You know, this brings me back to my mm-hmm. favorite book. And the, po- the, the quote was, and all the lives we ever lived and all the lives to be are full of trees and changing leaves. And I wasn't, I love Virginia Woolf, but I wasn't familiar with, with this piece of writing. So I looked it up a little bit and it explore, it's an examination of the complex tension of family life and the conflict between men and women. Mm. So I know, you know, in this instance, men and women maybe isn't as applicable, but if you change that to the conflict between men and men, and really the book is about the human capacity for change. And so I thought, Mm. I think this is a really brilliant plug from our author of some foreshadowing of what's to come in terms Mm. of human capacity for change and uh, what I, what's not explored for me yet about that is which humans are changing in this story. Right. Another brilliant moment that I thought Brandon Taylor plugged, which is similar to this, there's that moment in the library where he's reading, and I think it's fucking Dana. Oh, no, it's Simone. Or Simone. Yeah, I thought it was Simone. Oh, okay, Simone. The dean. Simone is the fancy way of saying Simone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't you know? <laughs> right. This right. moment, like, super pissed me off. So she says yes. that Wallace, she she says some nasty comment to Wallace about how, oh, he was reading Dr. Seuss, and he was reading Proust. Right. So it's like another literary reference in here, just going to show again how people are fucking ignorant well, and I think, I think Simone was using that. I don't think Simone actually thought he was reading Dr. Seuss. I think she was just saying, like, whatever it is you're reading, it's not as important as what you should be doing in that lab. And then Wallace is like, actually, actually this is yeah. one of the greatest literary works. Like, But it feels like yet another one of those little... I feel like this happens to Wallace a lot, where people sort of ding him if that makes any sense there are all these tiny i hate to use the word microaggression because that's such a little buzzword right now but like it does but that's but that's valid that's a real thing right Mm -hmm. and it does seem like there are these constant little microaggressions that get sent his way that he kind of just swats off like Mm -hmm. i feel like he clocks them but then he restrains himself for whatever reason from talking about them or mentioning them and i think it's because he knows that there's nothing he can do about them and he learned that the hard way with dana and simone well i think i've also that was something i've experienced in real life with a lot of my friends lately is i think another reason for that is it's just exhausting trying to have to explain and defend you know what i mean like if you if you had to call out every person that made those dumbass ignorant comments all all these forms of microaggression yeah yeah i think i don't know that was something that was another moment that my eyes were open to this summer and everything is like really paying attention to that and i think it's a way to belittle someone that you think that's beneath you or different than you it's a way to mm-hmm. like coin, kind of hold your power and hold right. your stance right. when you don't necessarily understand the other person or the other person's beliefs or desires or wants mm-hmm. I right. think they're using their power in that regard and I I mean knowing that that Wallace constantly is bombarded with this with these you know statements that are being thrown at him 
Like, I can see why he closes off. I can see yeah. why at, at some points he says, I, I don't want to continue with this. Like, what what is the point? And keep on combating people that will not change or will not just see me for, I guess, who I am. Yeah. So this brings me to a question um, for you two, just to see if we can kind of relate this a little bit more to our own stories. Um, have either of you ever experienced a time when you just didn't have it in you anymore? Where you didn't have the energy to continue and just wanted to kick, kick off your heels and move on? Where the aftermath was much more intriguing than the actual journey? And I'm relating this specifically to Wallace and his journey as a PhD student wanting to move on but constantly hitting this place where it's like, what's the point? Maybe I should just stop. Mm. Do you guys relate to this in any way? I think I I think the only real way that I could relate to this was, you know, as an actor, I worked in the restaurant industry for a really long time. And I feel bad saying this, but like I worked in the restaurant industry for years all the jobs that I had before that that were non-acting related jobs, I always kind of felt a little bit like a visitor. And I I would do that on purpose, I think. I would be a tourist in these jobs and kind of not get too comfortable. Don't make any friends here. Don't go out to drinks after. Like, we're not going to get comfortable here because we're not going to be here for that long. (laughs) And I did that for years at places. And it kind of really hurts me now because... There were probably friendships there and people there that I should have gotten to know better than I did. I should have probably invested more time in those people and friendships than I did. But it was just one of those things to me that felt like a means to an end. And like I like Wallace, I feel like was trying to put up boundaries and Mm -hmm. protect myself because this was not going to become my life. I was it was almost like I was protecting myself from becoming a part of that place like I Mm. could not I knew I had to move on from this I could not get comfortable here it's interesting that you say that because it's kind of like this coping mechanism yeah 100% it's a way to kind of push through knowing that this right now this is what you have to face and then just hopefully you'll be on the other side of things and not have to deal with it again yep knowing that you might have lost some maybe important or crucial relationships along the way that might have been something that would have been substantial or just something supportive in your in your journey on your journey um one thing that i just thought about when you were saying that i have a a vivid memory you guys have heard me talk a lot about my dancing career and those listeners out there but it was quite a struggle for me for for a very long time because it was my passion but i kept on hitting obstacles along the way and there were times where i was always looking forward to after the performance, after the rehearsal, after oh, the just like getting over, even though my passion, and my desire was to be on stage, was to be a performer. But it was always like, I can't wait until it's over, which is kind of sad yeah. because why would you wait until it's over knowing that that's what you're working towards? Right. But a lot of it also had to do with the relationships that I had, the people mm-hmm. that I encountered, the struggle of just um, all the rejection and all the yeah. the you're not you are not enough. So I I specifically remember the day that I tore my first ACL that I was right before we went on stage, I kept on thinking, I can't wait until I'm home. I can't wait until I'm home. I can't wait until I'm home. And now thinking back nine years, it's like, 
what if what if that wouldn't have been my thought process? Because mm. now I'm home, but I'm not right. dancing anymore. Right. Wow. Oh. So it kind of just brought me to that place because mm. I have it's it's a it's it's I've thought about it quite a lot. And it's mm. interesting how your mind is so powerful and that you and yeah. you cope in ways that you never thought would right. be a way that you could push through. Right. Well, Brandy, you took my answer because that's actually when you asked that question, Mariana, that was that was the first thing that came to my mind, too, is all of those side jobs I've had to get me through and how I knew I didn't want to stay doing it, but it was what I was doing. And I, it wasn't like I – the problem with me is that when I'm doing something, I want to still do it really well. So even though it wasn't what I wanted, I still really focused on it and made sure that I was – being the best I could be at it. But I was like, but it, I don't want this. But so for sake of having a different answer <laughs> from yours, the other thing that came to mind was my relationship with singing. Because oh. in high school, well, and growing up and in high school still, I loved singing. And I always knew that I didn't have the best voice, but I really enjoyed it. Mm. And I took voice lessons and I loved my voice lessons, but I was always really nervous about them. Just mm. I think because I knew that I I didn't have full like the, the full control of my voice that I wanted. And then sadly when I went to college, I actually went to college for musical theater and I had a great voice teacher, but I lost my love of singing. Oh. Um because I had like a I had a soprano voice and as soon as I got to college my teacher really wanted me to learn how to belt cuz she was like mm. if you're going to be in musical theater you have to learn uh. how to do this. So I put all my efforts into learning how to belt and in doing so I had an okay belt and then an okay soprano voice. Uh. And you know we had practice rooms at school for you to go in and spend hours practicing and I never did like I hated it Aww. and I just realized for me that was like I just I kept telling myself I just want to be good I just want to be a good singer and have a good voice yeah. but I didn't want to put the work in to do it yeah so yeah I think that that was that for me mm. <laughs> then I was Aww. like okay I'm not gonna be a singer right you sort of realized you didn't want it enough is that yeah, I just didn't want to put the work in. Like, I liked doing it, but for me to, for the amount of work that I would have to do to be at the competitive level that I would need to be in, auditioning for musicals here, yeah, I was like, I don't want it that badly. It sounds like it just took the joy out of it for mm -hmm. you. It took all the joy out of it, yeah. yeah. But sadly, it comes down to what your teacher said. In a way, like, she had a lot of influence giving you that comment. And yeah. it kind of changed the trajectory of. Probably. That's <laughs> I mean, true of what you were doing. Yeah. Yeah, probably. I mean, sadly in that, <laughs> at that time, not to say that that was the wrong move for you, but it brought you where you are today. But no, right. I think it ultimately was definitely the best move for me, but it was, yeah, that, that was a hard uh, transition for me realizing that I was going to retire from musicals and just mm. focus on straight acting straight acting yeah yeah well so we we leave wallace and miller in the apartment i guess wallace leaves miller the next morning and heads back to the lab and 
I found this exchange really interesting. Wallace's friend, Bridget, mm. sort of mm. pulls him aside as he's working to repair his nematodes. He's kind of assessing the damage, mm-hmm. which seems semi-apocalyptic or something like what's yeah. happened. It seems like pretty <laughs> beyond repair. And his friend Bridget pulls him aside and says that there are rumors floating around that Dana... Fucking Dana. Fucking Dana. She's like our Virgil. Is Yes. Is possibly responsible. There's a rumor that she's responsible for possibly having tampered with Wallace's nematodes having caused this whole problem. So then we meet Dana... The gifted Dana. The very gifted (laughs) Dana. And this is sort of also when we sort of learn more about Simone, Mm. who's sort of the head of the department, and the sort of influence that she has on everybody and the judgments she's placed on Wallace and the very gifted Dana. There's a quote that I wanted to read to you guys that if the world has made its mind up of what you have to offer, yeah. if the world yep. has decided it wants you, needs you, then it doesn't matter how many times you mess up. What Wallace wants to know is where the limit is. Mm. When it's no longer forgivable to be so terrible. And we're talking in regards here to Dana. Yeah. When does the time come when you've got to deliver on your gifts? When yeah. is that time? Right. And nobody forces you to do so, but you, the world already knows you one way. But if you're gifted, then okay, kudos to you, move on, and but you I never have to deliver on them. What the fuck does gifted mean in regards to <laughs> Dana? Because it doesn't seem like she has done anything to merit this little badge of gifted that Simone has bestowed on her. It seems like from the moment she and Wallace encounter each other, Dana is fucking up and getting away with it. I wonder if she was just really gifted enough to make it into the school, to make it into this graduate program, and everybody knew her as being like an intellectual. But when it comes down to actually executing what she needs to execute, she doesn't do it. But people already know her that way. And I think to to Brandon's point, it's the world already knows you a certain way. So they don't mm. expect more from you. They already know that this is this is a given. This is who you are. And we're moving on. Yeah. But the challenge is, are you really seeing her for who she is? Right. Which Wallace is, but it seems like Simone and everybody else, uh, uh, aside from Bridget, it seems to me, everybody else is seeing her as the gifted one. As the golden child. Yeah. Yeah. I hate her. so sad. I hate her so much. (laughs) And I also thought it was really interesting that Dana accuses Wallace of having this little click with Bridget. Right. When it seems like Dana and Simone, the head of the department, have right. a freaking click of their own going on. Like, it's it feels a little bit like it's those two against everybody else or something. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think Dana is related to Simone in any way, but there is sort of like a nepotism feeling there for me or something. You know what I mean? Like, as if she was related to Simone in some way, and so she just gets a pass. Mm. I think that pass is being white. But there are other... Miller's white, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they are, like, there are other white members of the team that are, don't seem to be getting as big a pass as what Dana's getting. Yeah, it's not the same, but I think that that's, like, that's a huge part of the dialogue of this book. It's just like... For sure. How much harder he has to work to prove that he deserves to be there. Right. 
And I did, I wrote this quote down, which just really made me angry. It's of Simone. She spoke as though she were saving him. What could he say? What could he do? Nothing, except to work. And now the work has been turned on him. His work is an insult to them. She hates him because he works. But he works only so that people might not hate him and might not rescind his place in the world. He works Mm. only so that he might get by in life on whatever he can muster. Mm -hmm. None of it will save him, he sees now. None of it can save him. Mm -hmm. And that broke my heart because it seems like work and being a good worker and being good at what he does is his whole identity at this point. Like, I feel like he just loves what he does and he's good at what he does and he knows what he's doing. And he's realizing now that even that that's not enough. He thinks that being a good worker will help people see past their own bias and it won't. And here comes Dana to flitting along, just proving that that's true because she doesn't even have to work. Really? She's fucking everything up and she's still the brilliant golden child. Totally. And he's not using like if he works, people will like him. He's using that people won't hate him if he works. So it's already going to that place of not hopefully they'll like me. Hopefully they just won't hate me if I have a good work ethic. Being disliked is a given. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I felt so much for Wallace in this chapter, especially. Um, I, I know I keep quoting things, but this quote really got me. In his less generous moments, Wallace thought these two things related, that a narrowing, a reduction in the number of applicants had made his admission yes. possible. Mm-hmm. And it's painful to me in these two, these two chapters how inadequate Wallace feels and is mm-hmm. made to feel, mm-hmm. especially since he does seem to be one of the more highly motivated focused members of he's always group. in the lab he's always in the freaking lab even dana says that she's like who the fuck do you think you are why are yeah. you always here like what are you trying to prove right and it made me wonder whether you ladies have ever struggled with feelings of inadequacy i'm sure you have uh, but, never. but i but right and what, are you what talking you, about and what you do to counterbalance those feelings to set yourself straight again when you have them i mean <laughs> I feel inadequate all the time. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. Inadequate like right I laugh now. about it so I don't cry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I really do. I think I wonder how many people in our field feel that way. Like oh I wonder if that comes with the territory of just doing yeah. what we do. Yeah. I think most likely it does probably. Um I remember, I mean, going all the way back to high school, I remember feeling really inadequate because I was a dance major in high school, but I was still acting and performing outside of high school. I was doing like professional theater and the dance majors gave me such a hard time. Hmm. So I remember, you know, we didn't call them dance recitals. We had dance concerts (laughs) (laughs) and... I had a um, a pas de deux in, mm-hmm. in a dance concert, I think our senior year, that was pretty like intense and required a lot of um, 
rehearsal and focus. And then I also was performing in Babes in Toyland, (laughs) 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 like an hour outside of my school. And so there were some days where I had to go and do a performance and then come back to school. And I remember this one particular day we were rehearsing for our dance concert and I was late because I was rushing back from a matinee of of the show. Hmm. And the dancers were so mean to me because they were like, you're a dance major, but you're not you're not focusing on this. And like, what do you want to be like an actor or a dancer? Like I couldn't do both. Um, And it just pretty much like made me feel like shit for the rest of the year about that. And, you know, in the scheme of things, that's like so not a big deal but it really affected me in the moment of course and then i still always have feelings of inadequacy whether it's in class or whether it's in a performance whether it's on set i mean there's just always something to come up where you're like why did they cast me like surely they they (laughs) made a mistake and now they know it you know that happens all the time yeah yeah but for your second half of your question of how do I deal with it, I don't know. I guess I don't deal with it very well, I think. Well, you're I still doing really it. So exactly. You're still pushing yeah. through. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I think yeah, you bitch, to, you got it. Yeah. You got to keep pushing through. You, you have don't, to. Yeah, you fall What's apart. What's the alternative? Yeah. yeah, only you can only do it for yourself and nobody because nobody's going to do it for you. Right. right. Um, yeah, I, I, I think... We don't talk about this enough. I think people within the same industry, actors that are involved in the same world, don't talk about in the insecurities enough mm. because then we could really <laughs> have like a powwow and really realize that we're all on the same page. Like we're all on the yeah. same boat. Like these insecurities do happen all the time because right. mm. I feel inferior all the time. Yeah. Um, and like... To your point, Emma, like transitioning from a dancer to an actor, I, I have like right. this inferiority complex because yeah. I didn't go to school for acting. I went to school for dance. And yeah, I went to Fordham with Alvin Ailey. I mean, one of the most prestigious BFA programs in the country, mm. but it wasn't specifically for dance. Sure, I was taking acting classes as like a minor, mm. but I always feel like there's this kind of the imposter syndrome. That I'm yeah. not necessarily at a place or where I should be at my age or that because I don't have, even though I've studied so much, that I'm not at. But I think it's all in my head. That's the thing. It comes down to all being in yeah, your hand, head sure. and feeling that you're you're lesser than knowing that this this industry is so subjective. Everybody's going to have a different opinion about you. Yeah. It's it's how you differentiate between someone's opinion and your own opinion about yourself and not having those opinions influence you, which right. is a constant battle that I have on a daily. Like just I have to forget about what everybody else thinks of me and just push through with like somebody's going to give me the shot. Mm. If someone gives me the opportunity, then I'm obviously good enough to be on set, be on that stage or be in that reading. Right. Well, I just have to interject and quickly plug another podcast, Gasp. Um, Brandy turned me on to this podcast called Audrey Helps Actors. Uh, oh. And the first five episodes are all devoted to Audrey interviewing. She's an actor, a, a pretty successful actor. The first five episodes of her podcast are devoted to interviewing lots of people in regards to whether or not they've ever thought about quitting the business. And I cried through every episode (laughs) because I think there was just so much comfort. And like you're saying, Mariana, about there's a stigma about really about not talking about it, because it's like if you talk about it, then people will 
I don't know, assume that you're not serious about it or maybe you're not right. you're not in it to win it, which is just so not true. And so to right. hear all of these Fake different it until perspectives you make it. <laughs> <laughs> To hear all these different perspectives about people that were like, yeah, I think about quitting the business every day. It's like, mm. oh, okay, so it's okay to have those feelings. And right. if you, and then if you really decide that you do need to, then you do it. Or you realize that this is just like a passing thing that people go through all the time. And then right. you decide if that feels appropriate or not. But I don't know. That was really warming to me to hear people be so candid about yeah. that, that yeah. this is an actual very common thing. That because of people's inadequacies and insecurities, yeah. not inadequacies, feel feelings, feelings of inadequacy, of inadequacy. Yes. important distinguishment, <laughs> right? Well, what I thought you were going to plug as Mariana's talking all about feeling inadequate and and feeling like she's got, you know, imposter syndrome and all this is that she just won a Best Supporting Actress Award for <gasps> a short film that she did. Actually, yes. a feature film, oh, which was very sweet. It's a feature very, film. Oh, it's a feature film. Yes. That's, That's what I should have oh, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Brandy. Yeah. So next let's cheers time. So, to that. Let's cheers to yeah. that. Thanks, guys. Award-winning actress. <laughs> I love you guys. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That's so true. It was very unexpected, but I, I but to, yeah, it's like you listen to those people that give you the thumbs up, like you two do for me on a daily. So there yes, you go. Yes, absolutely. Move on the positivity with hope. Right. Hope, what about you, wholeness. Brandy? Are you just perfect and you have no feelings of inadequacy? <laughs> absolutely. She doesn't at all. She's the boss yeah, man. Yeah, freaking boss woman. right. When you said, Emma, that you think it just comes with it, you know, that it might just come with the territory with what we do. Like, I totally hear that. I think I think you're so right. It's mm. so easy to fall in the trap of like, oh, I got three auditions today. I'm feeling amazing. And then, oh, literally the next day I got zero auditions. Nothing. I feel like a trash can. Yeah. And like, you can't let that rule your life. But like, a lot of the time it does like yeah even when I'm consciously thinking about it like Brandy you feel like crap today because you don't have any auditions even when I can acknowledge that that's why I feel like crap I still feel like crap about it you know what I mean and there's nothing I can do about it I can't yeah. conjure an audition for myself so yeah I mean I think as along with both of you I think hearing other actors going through the same struggle is hugely helpful hearing other people in other arts disciplines going through the same struggle mm -hmm. is hugely helpful and then I think for me also the biggest thing that helps me is just like being in action about something mm. right. if that's reading a play if that's mm. signing up for a class starting if a podcast yeah, that's starting a <laughs> podcast that we then do for years and years whatever it is yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think just being in action and like having a plan is something that I like cling to so yeah. hard <laughs> to yeah. keep saying yeah. <laughs> well, and something I've heard a lot that's really helped me through that, too, is you are not what you do. Mm. So I think that's also really, so yes, really key. That's you know, so Just true. because we're not getting auditions doesn't mean, A, that we're bad actors, but also doesn't mean that we're not, it doesn't mean that that's all we are. We are right. not our acting career. Right. There is a lot more to us than that. Absolutely. And for us to put all of those eggs in one basket is really dangerous. Yeah. And I think, and I don't know if you guys agree with this, with Wallace, him being so focused in his work and then his work going not the yeah. way that he planned 
Yeah. It's devastating for someone who is like all they. His they, whole identity is that. Exactly. It is that. So I think it just, um, it's opening up these conversations and really talking about these things where, where I feel like we yeah. need to do more often than not. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad we're opening yeah. the, the pathway for, for mm. things that need to be talked about mm. overall. Changing gears a little bit. You know what I wanted to talk about that I was so happy was brought up? This whole dialogue, and I'm an I'm an asshole because I didn't write down the context of this. So I don't even know who I don't even know who was talking to each other. But there was a whole dialogue where Wallace is um saying how how are you is so dumb and meaningless, like mm-hmm. asking that question of others. Yeah. Do you remember how that happened? It was he was talking to Miller. Oh, it was after the fact. Yeah, it was after the fact. After they had had their night, they they had met up for the oh, first time, and right. I think Miller was like, "How are you?" And Wallace was like, "Wait, why mm-hmm. are you asking me this? Are we past that?" Yes, but I loved this because this was ac- this is actually something that I've been struggling with for years, and I've had conversations about this with a few people. We're like, we. We are kind of robots in the sense that when you run into someone, you're like, hey, how are you? And everyone's like, good. Mm-hmm. How are you? Good. No one's actually like, oh, I'm actually pretty shitty today. And like, We just right. did that today before it's we so got on Zoom. We basically yeah. did just that. <laughs> we probably do it every time because yeah. that's what we are like trained to say. But we're not really asking because we care. And we don't actually answer like I, I have. I don't know. I want to figure out new ways of greeting people so that when we run into people, we can say, hey, and then have something else other than how are you? Something that actually feels meaningful and not dumb and pointless. Yeah. So if anyone has any recommendations out there, can you like write me and let me know what you suggest I say? Because I want to eliminate how are you out of my vocabulary. What if it could it be like, how is your day going? Is that the same thing? Yeah, but people are still probably going to be like, good. How's yours? I want something just not emotional. Oh, that's not emotional. I guess. Because if you ask someone, how are you feeling? Oh, yeah. Then you you can really get, like, how are you feeling? Like, Brandy, today, when we started the Zoom, she's like, how are you? I think you said, how are you? Probably. And I was like, I'm doing fine. Or I, like, answered in a way that I don't normally answer. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it, but I did it in a way that like the, my tone of voice just was not where it usually is because I've, ha- I've had a pretty shitty day. I'm going to say it out Aww. loud. I've had a pretty shitty day. Aww. But it's like, why aren't we vulnerable enough to say, I'm not I've had a today. shitty day. Right. Like, why can't we just open up the conversation and be like, guys, like this has been really fucked up. Like my water wasn't working. My Aww. dog, my poor puppy has has been having issues. Andrew's really stressed out with work. I'm overwhelmed with everything that I'm doing. Like, why can't you just go on on a tangent and just say. Because you don't want to burden the other person with don't. all of that. That's right. And and <sighs> and you want to seem together. You right. want to seem like you want to you've got your else. shit together. Yeah. Yeah. You don't well, want I, to give the impression. I don't care about that. Like, I don't mind letting you guys know that that I don't have my shit together. But I wouldn't want to put. I wouldn't want you guys to then feel like you have to be like, "Oh no, tell me about it." You know, like I wouldn't want your sympathy. No, but so, I think we would both sympathy empathize. Sympathy or empathy? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we wouldn't be like, "Oh, Emma, <laughs> I'm, I might try to smooch you." I don't know. You know, this could get dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> At least via Zoom. I don't know how we would go. <laughs> All right. Where are we? This moment. 
really, I know I've said this twice now, but this moment really made my blood fucking boil. Fucking Dana. It really (laughs) made me realize that Dana thinks she can say or do whatever she wants with Mm. impunity. And it's when Wallace says, I don't think you ruined my plates, if that's what you're worried about. And Dana responds with a quote unquote animatronic jerkiness, as if electricity were independently bringing parts of her to life. Low at first, a whisper, but then almost immediately louder, laughter. She says, oh my God, listen to you. How arrogant can you be? Do you think I care what you think? And this moment, you know, he was trying to say to her, if you're worried that, that, you know, I think you ruined my slides, don't worry. Right. And she responds by laughing at him. And it just felt like she was signaling to him that whatever he says, what he thinks, what he feels, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because not only is she not worried about what people are saying, because she knows Simone has her back, she wants Wallace to know she couldn't possibly care less. She seems so offended by the fact that they exist at the same level. And I shouldn't even say at the same level because he's like above her. He's... I think she's like a freshman or something and he's like a senior. So like Mm. they're not even at the same level. But she has to inform him of the quote unquote fact that she's so above him that the mere suggestion that she might care what he thinks makes her laugh. It just made me so mad. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, this is right around the time when she says that infamous thing you know she accuses him of being a misogynist he says he's not a misogynist and she basically says you're a man you can't tell me that that you're not a misogynist i get to tell you that right and she has the audacity to say that she has to work so hard to prove herself and that's why he like that he because he's a man because whatever like he obviously gets more of a the recognition and that she has to constantly prove herself because he already thinks he's so important which is so not the case Mm -mm. but she's so oblivious to reality i think right and what she doesn't understand is that she's just being plain cruel he even said uh brandon even says that people can be unpredictably it can be unpredictable in their cruelty right which i think that's exactly what she's doing at this point she doesn't understand that her words to hit home and they are harmful well that leads me to this super powerful quote that just shattered me which is so Uh true the most unfair part of it wallace thinks is that when you tell white people that something is racist they Uh hold it up to the light and try to discern if you are telling the truth as if they can tell by the grain if something is racist or not, and they always trust their own judgment. It's unfair because white people have a vested interest in underestimating racism, its amount, its intensity, its shape, its effects. They are the fox in the hen house. And that, to me, is kind of like the epitome of... Does that make sense, the epitome of the book? Yeah, That's well, it's the like right the word. central sort of problem the yeah. of the book. That to me is like the essence of the book. Yeah. Well, and that quote really made me worry about Wallace here at the end. You know, Dana says these horrible things to him. She says the N word and the F word <laughs> to him. And he responds by telling her to fuck off. 
and multiple I just, times. Multiple times. And I just, and he walks out and I had the horrible feeling that I was like, oh, is he going to like lose his place in the department over this? Because to the, to the point of the quote you just brought up, Emma, like, I don't think he can go to Simone and justify this by saying, well, she was being a racist idiot in what she said to me. Right. So that's why I said this. Because I don't think Simone's trying to hear that. No, and Simone has already called him out, saying when there was another instance where right. when she was like, well, this is not racism. You just right. have to work harder. Right. She's like, she already, like, preemptively already said, head. no, th- this is not what you're thinking. This yep. is how the world works, basically, right about so that. to speak. Yeah. yeah, she already has, the in the same way that she has Dana pegged as the bright one, she has him pegged as sort of an inferior mm-hmm. one, mm-hmm. even though they're completely flip-flopped. It's so it's this disturbing. ending really just made me so worried for him and what's about mm. to happen. I hope it's I hope it's not the case, but I just feel like he's in trouble. I didn't even think that, but yeah, I hope not. Yeah. I just feel like Dana's immediately going to go running to Simone and say like look what he did to me or look what he said to me. Like this is an aggression against he's such a misogynist. This is an aggression against, you know, me as a female or it just seems like her head is already, yeah, that's where her headspace right. is. Mm. And I feel like Simone is just like already ready to back her up. Uh, Brandon does go on to say how Wallace keeps on thinking about the image of a bird. Right after that, like when he says sees Miller, Miller is at like the stop of the staircase right. where they have just had their interaction. And he thinks about the image of a bird again. And Wallace goes on to say, the way a bird can move where it wants in space, no dimension is unconquerable. I mean, that like pretty mm. much... Also the essence and why there's a bird on the cover of the book. Yeah. Because uh, the image of the bird has come up more more than once. Right, right. And he's he's envisioned that and envisioned what birds can do and how it would be to be a bird, to be mm. that free and to be able to, to just fly above everything. Right. And that everything below him looks so small. I want to just keep reading right now. I know. <laughs> Same here. I'm really, really liking this book so far. As, I'm as loving it. Me too. powerful and sad and real as it is. Yeah. I really want to keep going. But before we end this, we have to end with our final question. And I want to end on a lighter note because... This was a, this is a lot, and it so I want to bring us back to our Are These Books Drunk? Thank you. You know, <laughs> mojo. <laughs> I want to know. Oh, God. In line with the name of our cocktail today. Yes. <laughs> who was your first kiss with? Oh, what was God. it like? I'm taking Dish. another sip, oh my finishing God. this baby. You guys, I feel so sad. I don't actually remember my first kiss. And the reason Mm. is because I was so young. I think I was maybe like five or six. And my great grandma's house was like the dumping ground sort of for all of the cousins. Like we would all just sort of end up at my great grandma's house and she would like take care of us for the day. And there was a neighbor kid whose name I still cannot remember. We had like some little nickname for him and he was like shy and kind of nerdy but every once in a while he'd kind of come around and like try to play with us and stuff and I don't I think we were playing a house or something once and he was my cousin or he was my husband and so we like pecked it wasn't like a real kiss but it was like a peck 
And I remember, I remember like not thinking much of it at all. But then I saw him at school the next day and I tried to talk to him and he was so shy and embarrassed oh, about no. it that he wouldn't even talk to me. <laughs> he was blushing. <laughs> he was so embarrassed. Well, actually, I, I took this when this question was posed. I took it as like your first like passionate kiss because oh. I have a vivid memory of my first like real kiss. Um, I was so for Colombianas and Latinas, we do quinceañeras. Mm. The quinceañera for me was on a cruise with my parents and Ooh. my best friend and her family. So we went to the Caribbean and to Mexico for seven days. Wow. On the cruise, there was this teenager club where I would go every night. So like oh, parents could come in and like eavesdrop God. and see if your kids were okay. And I <laughs> met this guy on the cruise. He was 18. I was 14 at the time because I was in 15. Oh, yet. my God. And we were dancing and he went and kissed me. The worst part, my dad witnessed the whole thing. It was my... <gasps> It was like one of those kisses that you were like, oh, my God, what am I doing? But it was so passionate. Uh, so I go into like the room where I was staying with my parents that night. And my dad's like, did you have fun today? I'm like, oh, yeah, papi, I had a great time. Who's the guy? I'm like, oh, oh, oh shit. God. <laughs> yeah, I was like, great. My dad witnessed his only daughter's first That's like kind of cute kiss. though it's kind of sweet it is kind of yeah. sweet <laughs> it was really fun it was it was a great time and so he was my boyfriend on the cruise and after that for like a month but then we your parted cruise ways. boyfriend <laughs> <My> cruise boyfriend <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think that my first kiss was fourth grade with mcgregor lenars you remember his name oh, McGregor oh lenars McGregor Lenars. <laughs> Can we find him on Instagram and we tag him? him on <laughs> He's pretty handsome, I have to say. Oh my. Ooh. And I knew that things were serious with us because we exchanged photos of ourselves. <gasps> oh, <laughs> like this is before Insta and social. Yeah. You actually were like <laughs> Yeah, we had the real deal. I had like a little framed picture of like his school photo and I loved it. Oh like in God. your locker or like at home? We didn't even have lockers. It was fourth grade. So I just like kept it in my backpack, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, this is my boyfriend, McGregor. And then the same day that he, I say in air quotations, broke up with me, my friend Maggie asked him out. And no he way. Said yes. <gasps> oh, Maggie. Maggie. Not really a friend. Maggie. How dare you, Maggie? Wow. She stole McGregor. McGregor's Oof. loss. MacGyver. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and he had too much to drink, apparently. Too many first kisses for us. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, well, on the MacGyver note... <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. A big thank you to Jimmy Fontanez and Meteorite Productions, as well as Text Me Records for our music. Hey, you guys, some of you have been giving us some really cool feedback and reviews. Yeah, I'm liking this. We Keep love our engaging it. on social. Thanks, y'all. Joining us for happy hour or yeah. brunch. So, I mean, we really appreciate all of you tuning in and keep those reviews coming. We love hearing from you and telling us what you think, guys, girls, yes. ladies, gents, everybody. Love it. Yes. Love it. Next week, we're reading chapters three and four, which are pages 107 to 192 in the hard copy of the book. 
Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Are These Books Drunk if you're not already. But if you're not, then what are you doing? What are you doing? I don't what know are what you're doing. doing. To find out what next week's cocktail pairing is so that you can read along and sip along with us. Cousins, always, always happy hour. Happy hour. Happy hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ciao, Bye. Bye. Ciao, chicas. <laughs>